Numbers 15. There's a uh, point to pick up uh, at verse um, 17. The people are leaving this um, land of Egypt. They were enslaved. Moses is leading them through a wilderness. And they go through so many various trials. They're murmuring, complaining. They don't have food. They don't have water. And he's teaching them this whole thing called a sacrificial system in which they have to make right on all of their wrong. In which they have to bring something to the Lord to atone for all their sins. To be at one again with God. To be at one. Atonement. United with God. And so what God does here is he does an amazing thing. He brings along Moses and he says, Now when we sacrifice, when you are coming to make right with me, you need to know something. You need to know something about the way sin works. And there's various types of sacrifices that you have to understand. And here, Numbers 15, verse 17, he begins to outline the laws about sacrifice. God's word says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord of the first of the dough that you shall present as a loaf of contribution. That is the first time they make their wheat and their produce, and they actually make dough and make bread. That that should immediately, that first one, just given straight over to God as a is an honor and recognition to what he's done for them, bringing them into this land, bringing them into the provision he had for them. Skipping down to verse 22 is where God actually digresses to say, now when you have sin, you have to deal with it this way, or it will not go well with you in this land. When you have sin, he says this, but if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all the commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses all that the Lord has commanded commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout all your generations that is from that moment to the commandment to the generations to follow for many hundreds of years any time any of this is transgressed or broken you have to deal with it Particularly, unintentionally, not knowing it. Then if, verse 24, then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. With it a grain offering and a drink offering according to the rule of one of the male goats for sin offering. So burnt offering, grain offering, drink offering, sin offering. Four things have to offer this to make restitution, to make right. And the priest shall make atonement for the congregation and the people of Israel. And they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake and they have uh, brought their offering. A food offering to the Lord, their sin offering before the Lord. For it is their mistake. They didn't understand. It was done unintentionally. It was a mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who, the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. It is corporate guilt. There was actually a, a sin they could commit in which a whole group of them corporately were culpable, were responsible. And then it transitions and speaks individually. 
And if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake unintentionally. When the sin is unintentional, to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Think about that. You shall have one law, whether you are native, that is, you should know God's law, his commandments, and therefore if you sin unintentionally, it's probably from being a lack of self-awareness, but even the foreigner, someone who wasn't raised up knowing the law of Moses. Well, they could sin unintentionally by being, having a lack of law awareness, self-awareness or a lack of word awareness. These are how we sin unintentionally. Either way, he's saying it has to be dealt with. And now this is the petrifying verse. This is the verse that we should seriously think about, that we should all deeply consider and let meditate to our bones. Verse 30 says this, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or sojourner, doesn't matter, reviles the Lord. And the person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Just register that last verse. You read the previous scenarios leading into the final. And you hear about this thing called a guilt offering. And a sin offering. And goats and sheep. And then at the very end it says, but if it's with a high hand. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the guilt offering or this thing called a sin offering? He'll be cut off. He'll just be cut off. That's scary. It's a big deal. The whole point to go into this flyover country of Numbers 15 is to say, to put it before us this morning, it's a big deal. Oftentimes, oftentimes, we talk about confessing our sin and we simply just say, and rightly so, Jesus has paid for my sin. My sin is dealt with on the cross. Therefore, just it's simple. I just shouldn't have, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What about Numbers 15? What if it's really a big deal? And that if we don't sense it to be a big deal, this verse makes no sense. Because some sins, like we described at the beginning, are unintentional. You just simply say, you know, you know what, I shouldn't have said it that way, or I shouldn't have done it that way, or I forgot about that, or I wasn't really aware of myself at the time, you're right, that was wrong. And you just, and it's, in, in the law, it's, well, here's a sacrifice, make it right, go confess it, it's gone, it's done away with. But we need, and I, I, I fear that we don't, have a category in our own minds for another kind of sin. 
A very dangerous sin. Called a a high-handed sin. A sin that's very intentional. And then when you keep reading, the verses don't go very far. It simply just says, no sacrifice, nothing. You are cut off. Cut off. So when we talk about this, when we say we need to confess our sin, this is serious. You can tell what's serious in a culture by the way its language is used. It describes here the corporate sin of the whole congregation, the individual sin of the person, and then lastly, this high-handed sin in which the law is broken and the person is cut off. Now, I fear that, and it's kind of a funny story, I have a friend who would work late at night and come home uh, hungry at one or two in the morning, and his family would all be asleep. And I fear that we really do deal with our sins this way. We think, well, in, in our simple, simple understanding is there's sin, it's confessed, it's forgiven, in Jesus, it's done, right? But is it really confessed in the sense that you actually have laid it down, right? Have you actually really cleansed the thing? Sometimes I feel that we go to the point of trying to cleanse our sins in such a way. My one friend comes home from work and he's tired and hungry, not thinking very clearly. And uh, he wants to maybe make a pizza or a sandwich or something. He's very hungry, wants to go to sleep. It's one or two in the morning. Everyone else is asleep in the house. And what he does is he's doing something, cleaning dishes with dish soap. He has a big thing of dish soap. You imagine a big dial, something you get at Sam's Club, big economical version. And uh, he has it, and he slips. It slips out of his hand, falls on the ground, smashes, and dish soap everywhere on the floor. And that's much different than cleaning up some water. You don't just get a few paper towels and just, that, it, it's slimy and gooey, and you go at it, and you get maybe this much, and it just spreads everywhere. And so what does he do? What do we do with our sin? Well, he works construction, and he goes out to his car, gets this caution tape. <laughs> he wrapped that caution tape around the whole entire kitchen. And you're think, well, that's not sufficient. He's like, oh, but there's more. He goes out and gets a big industrial fan and shoots it right at the, the puddle of dish soap. And he went to bed. So his parents get up, come down, and they're like, what the heck are you doing? That would only take 10 years to dry up. You have to go and clean that. It's like, but I put caution tape around it. Really, what do we do with our sin? Do we just clean the thing? Or do we just say in the back of our minds, the recesses of our minds, well, Jesus can fix that. And it's there and I know I'm kind of forgiven and I kind of have caution tape wrapped around in that area, that thing that nags me sometimes. And I'm waiting for it to just dry away. It will go away if I ignore it long enough. For at least a year or so, I won't think about that problem in my mind anymore. How it's, that, the first is comical, the second is tragic. We know what's important in a society by the way the words are used. When you read through Leviticus and all these places that are just ignored so much, it's because it's so technical and detailed. Right? God was creating a culture out of these people he made. And by creating the culture, he decided to make these laws, which from laws flow culture. And so from these laws, 
you notice that God's trying to create a culture in which sin is a really, really, really big deal. Try to read Leviticus through. Try not to be bored or distracted. The reason it is the way it is is because it is so minute and detailed and obscure because our way of thinking of sin is so contrary to God's value system. And when you compare the biblical religion, the gospel, it is so contrary to every other religion. In the one, and many, a few other major factors, one is sin is it. It is the big deal. That is the center of it all. Destroy sin, be right with God. Everything else, all the major systems, they don't take sin even half as serious as the biblical religion. The actual God-inspired translated, transcendental truth that God brought down from a mountain for Moses is to say, all your problems in the world, you think it's this, you think it's you need to be more enlightened, you think you need to get more virtuous, you think you need to have all your systems and things worked out, whatever it is that makes life better, whatever the problems are, God says, no, it is this, it is sin. And then what unrolls is a complicated vocabulary a complicated system in which there's so many nuances and definitive structures of how sin and sacrifice is looked at through this culture. So you see, you can tell what's valuable in a culture and what is the economy of the culture, the structure of the culture by its language. It follows, of course, in the Bible there's no word for computer. There's no word for plastic, right? There was no word to reflect what their culture didn't have, right? In our modern culture, we have words for all sorts of things. We have synonyms for all sorts of things. Comical, I think, funny, is when you look up in English, our language, our culture, what word would you think, let me ask, what word you think would be a word that would have potentially some of the most synonyms in our culture? A word that is just just dissected and put at from so many different angles and described in so many different ways. One concept for the Bible, one of those concepts is sin. Sin is looked at and described in so many different ways and dissected. What would be something very valuable for us, something we focus in on as a culture? Well, you can tell what words we have so many synonyms for. What words do we have that we speak of in so many different ways? And here it is. The one word is drunk. Being drunk. That's funny looking that up. I just Googled it, of course. Anyone could do the same. You look up the word drunk. How many synonyms are there for the word drunk? Well, apparently over 2,000. Do you believe that? If you don't believe it, go look it up, and you're going to just... You'll educate yourself. There's so many ways to describe someone that's drunk. And you know, you think like, off the top of your head, you could probably think, well, tipsy and loaded. And if you really think about it, you could come up with a lot, actually. I started doing it. Well, the list, think of it. There's tipsy, bashed, buzzed, uh, flushed, plastered, wasted, under the influence, liquored up, totaled, tanked, sloshed. That's my favorite one. There's a lot of them. 2,000. It's amazing. That's showing you something. Benjamin Franklin, back in the 1700s, they actually had a game of this. In the bar, in the parlor, they would actually go around talking about how many different ways they could define the word drunk. I don't know, writing a declaration or a constitution, this is what you do. Um, But he actually wrote a uh, drinker's dictionary. He just put out all these words for this, this thing that's so much fun and a pastime for the culture. But that, see, the principle is this was valuable to them. This is what they had their time and energy invested in. This is what our culture thought was important. And what flowed was the language. 
What flowed from the value of our culture is a system, words and structures that all value these things. They see them very important. Now, when the scriptures speak about sin and sacrifice, it gets complicated. Because it is valuable. It's important. Sacrifices. In Leviticus, there is this thing called the burnt sacrifice. It was the most common type of sacrifice given to uh, all the people to do in general. To find communion with God. To make right with God. The most common kind of sacrifice to make atonement. To come to the Lord and make peace with Him. And when we think of this, you and I, we confess our sins Here's an amazing concept. There's two other sacrifices. One's called the guilt sacrifice and one called the sin sacrifice. The guilt sacrifice was some type of animal or ram that was offered. And it was offered in such a way to make restitution. That is, to pay back, to make right on something. See, confession is not the idea that we are simply just going to say it with our mouth, oh, that was wrong and I should fix that. Well, that, you should fix that. That means you really have to fix that. God instituted that in the actual sacrificial system to teach the people. When you sin, and in some way you have actually wronged somebody that is actually fixable. That is, if you wrong God, you really can't fix a lot of that. That's a big problem. If you bump into someone's car, you need to go fix the car. You need to pay for the bill. That's just common sense. But when we come to the Lord, there's a sacrifice to be made for restitution, a guilt offering. And the other offering is called a sin offering. Sometimes called a purification offering. Is playing into the metaphor of confession for cleansing. Is that when we sin, there is a spiritual way, some spiritual relation in which we truly make ourselves defiled. Dirty. The sin offering was there for cleansing. It was the only sacrifice in which the animal's blood was taken into the temple and sprinkled all over the first room. That's the room where people would walk through. So the idea is that when we approach the Lord in our sin, without confession, without cleansing, it's as if we walk into God's house, which is that temple, with all our muddy boots, and we just trample all over it. We are defiling it, walking right through. We wouldn't do that with anyone else's house. But here, when we approach the Lord, that's exactly what is related. But the idea of sprinkling this blood all over that room is just like getting out the Windex and the wood polish and the soap and the water. And it would just sprinkle. The symbolism of, is that this sin offering, this purification offering, is cleansing everything you did. It's putting away all the dirt. It's a complicated system. Lastly, there was the peace offering in which the person would actually share a meal with God. Part of the animal was sacrificed and offered on fire to the Lord. Another part of the animal was given as a meal. The person who offered gets to eat that animal. So God has a portion and you have a portion, symbolizing that now everything's fine. Everything's clean. Come in here and sit at my dining room table. Talk with me. Commune with me. And so therefore the people were given a peace offering. It's a complicated system of a way of thinking. The way they describe sin, the English Bible's word for sin means miss the mark. But it's not just that. Sin isn't just that. It's complicated. There's synonyms. There's a word for transgression, which in the idea has the concept, of course, as crossing a line. Not just missing the mark, not just doing what you should be doing the wrong way. Trying, but failing 
Being human, we say, but transgression is there is a definitive line that God has given you and you are happy to trod right across it. The first sin of them all, of course, which was more particularly described as a transgression. There is this tree. Do not eat this tree. And then he went and ate the tree. Cross the line. Transgress. It's another word, iniquity. English Bible uses the word iniquity. Behind that word is the concept of being twisted. Being contorted, distorted. The concept of these synonyms for sin is to say, our sin has multiple effects. If your vocabulary for sin is so simple, we're not understanding the nature of these warnings in Numbers 15. The idea that sin could be iniquitous. It can twist your soul. It can contort your mind in such a way that you are bending and twisting and thinking in an abnormal way. It affects you and your culture and society that can become twisted and perverted. Iniquitous. But here this morning is the concept of breaking sin down into two categories. Here is where we break it down this morning. The idea that sin could either be intentional or unintentional. That's how Moses laid it out here for the people. Your sin could either be intentional sin or unintentional sin. And there's not a lot of gray area. Now there are places in scripture where the people would sin intentionally and it still could be offered to have a sacrifice. Leviticus 5 mentions if you make false vows intentionally because you're afraid maybe. Or you don't testify in court because you're afraid of getting in trouble and you're just fearful. You could do that intentionally and God will still make restitution on the sacrifice. But by and large, what's described here is this idea that we sin unintentionally. That we actually sin from not knowing ourselves or not knowing God's word appropriately. And this two ways of looking at it, sinning intentionally or sinning unintentionally, with a high hand that is, a high hand lifted up, we must internalize that and take it as a very serious warning. It's so much different than if you were to say, Boiling a frog in warm water. See, God is wise. He knows not to give you that kind of thing. He knows not to give you a way of looking at sin in which it could be one or two or three or four or maybe the heater is up to five, six, and ten. No, it's either on or off. It's either intentional or unintentional. It's either this way, which is not a big deal. If it's unintentional, we can deal with it. If it's intentional with a high hand, you might just be damned. You might just be cut off. That that is a concerning concept. It would be so much easier as a pastor just to preach something else. How many sermons have you heard on Numbers 15? But that, that uncomfortable dichotomy is here for us and for the intention of making us uncomfortable. Because that uncomfortability is a beautiful thing. God would not give us one, two, three, and four in different stages of you're here in your sin, then you're here in your sin, then you're here in your sin, and then you're, you've, you've backslidden, you've fallen away, you actually are damned. Right? No, it's simple as this. Did you do it on purpose? With a high hand? Did you do it by accident? 
If you did anything intentionally, be very, very scared. That's what God would say to us who loves us. Not giving us that option to take the frog in the warm water, being comfortable with our sin and comfortable with our sin. He knows that if, we, if he were to give us an inch in this, we would take a mile. If he were to say, well, you know, you did it intentionally. You know, you went to that website kind of intentionally. You know, you said that thing and you had the words in your mind and then you rambled it off and you said it out loud and you thought about it and you knew what you were going to say and you knew the implications of what was going to happen if you said it and you still said it anyway. And then you said, oh, I don't have a filter. No, no. That's called an intentional sin. And if that intentional sin was done with a high hand, that is, knowing this is contrary to God and rebelling against him, you could be damned. You could be cut off. This is the warning of Scripture. Because if that high hand never comes down, you're done. You never were a believer. You were never a child of God. On or off, it's a light switch and it's scary. But that's how we take our sin seriously. This is all coming to the point of seeing a need for confession. Confess, confess, and when in doubt, just confess. Bring it all out into the open. Take all the dirt from what's in the dark closets and expose it to the light. Walk in the light as children of the light. Don't hide it for a second. Anything you might be hiding, that could be high-handed. Why would you not confess it? Why do you argue against it? Why do you weasel around the verses? Why not just confess it? If you can just confess it, then... It's not high-handed. We can say that much. The sin that is done intentionally, or unintentionally rather, is in two forms, of course. That you could be unaware of God's law, or you could just be unaware of yourself. Right? So Paul, in Acts 17, goes to this Areopagus of Greek and Roman philosophers. They're not Jewish. They don't know the law of God. And he comes to them and he says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe upon his son who is resurrected. So God is saying, Paul is saying clearly, God is happy to overlook ignorant sins. God is happy to overlook times in which no one knows and it's done unintentionally. And there's other aspects in which you don't know yourself. You would, if you were more aware, maybe not do that various thing on Sunday and go to church instead. You forgot it was Sunday. You forgot it was time to worship the Lord. You just, you just forgot. All right, it's fine. That we're human. It can happen with all the congregation. It can happen to an individual. Think about the fact that all of us could be guilty of something as a church. As a church, the leadership of the church um, the, the, the people, the members in the church, uh, making directions, making uh, movements, uh, not saturating everything with prayer. People say, why, why do we pray so much? Why should you pray so much? Because we are fools. If you read, and this is the thing, most people don't even read numbers. Read numbers. Everything they do is wrong. 
Everything they do, they think it's a good idea and they do it wrong. And it makes their life so hard. It makes the growth and the mission and the success of their purposes always going off the rails. And we think, well, that's a fun story. And those guys were idiots. Now let's go do this. Let's hold a meeting and talk about how we're going to do stuff. It's like, maybe we should put our mind to have the mind of Christ to make decisions as a congregation, as a corporate entity, so that we would not be guilty of unintentional sins. Right? For example, think of this. The people, the next chapter before this one, uh, Numbers 14. God told them, the land is for you to take right now. You are here. Go take the promised land. I promise it to you. I will provide. You will prevail. And they said, no, we do not want to grow the mission of God. We do not want to do this thing you've called us to do. We are afraid, cowering in some type of idea of fear or um, just, just insecurities. And all the scriptures interpret that is high-handed rebellion. High-handed rebellion. The whole corporation was guilty of that. Simply for thinking, no, I think we should adopt this vision and not that vision. Well, what is the vision? Go out into the whole world and make disciples. That's it. That's from the Lord Jesus. Any decision we make contrary to that is like saying we won't go to the promised land. It's like saying we're here on the shores of the Jordan. The promised land is across the river. And we say, there are giants in the land. I can't go and share the gospel with everybody. I'm afraid. God says, no, you are rebellious. And you're guilty. Think of the concepts of that. And so here is the sin of intentionality. This is the frightening one. It says this, the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among God's people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord. He has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. And the phrase ends by saying, his iniquity be upon him. It's not coming off. The sacrifices, the iniquity would come off. Here, you commit this way, there is no provision. Your sin is upon you. And it will remain upon you. At least not through any type of animal sacrifice, that's for sure. There's no confession here mentioned. There's no cleansing that remains. There's no blood to be prescribed. There's no lamb. There's no goat. There's no bull. There's no guilt offering. There's no burnt offering. There's no sin offering. The filth, the dirt, the guilt, the shame, it all remains upon them. Because they did this in a high-handed, rebellious way. And therefore they are cut off. And the idea in Scripture, cut off, is throughout all the pages in which... It can either be interpreted, and people debate about this, that it would be a capital punishment immediately, not as likely. Removal from the community, cut off, just moved away. But most, most persuasively, is being cut off means that your life and vitality will be ended providentially through God and the circumstances in your life. That he will bring an end to that for you. That you will not go well with you, and that most times people are cut off and they die shortly over something, direct act of God or some type of judgment. You're just cut off. All spiritualized to realize the ultimate spiritual condition of those who raise their hand, dare to raise their hand against Yahweh. You are cut off. Psalm 2 says he laughs at people like that. He holds them in derision that all the nations of the earth would think they could raise a hand against God. 
When Psalm 2 says, no, here is his ring, kiss his finger. Kiss the emblem of his kingdom. Or he will crack your knees and make you bow. But this high-handedness is the concern. It's a high-handed sin. Particularly in scripture, you could have high eyes. Your eyes are lifted up in the sense that you are proud. You won't look down to other people. In Scripture, there's verses about having a high heart, a heart that's lifted up. Your thoughts about yourself are 300 miles higher than anyone else. And here, in Scripture, is the metaphor of having a high hand. That you would raise your hand up. That your power, the metaphor of power in Scripture is the hand. Hand is up, hand is down. It's the right hand of God that does this. The hand of the Lord parts the waters. Now you dare to raise your little hand and you say, Lord, I will do this with my power And I know it's contrary to you. And I don't care. And I don't care. (sighs) That's a high-handed sin. And to simply just say, well, I can always just repent of it tomorrow and he'll forgive me. What if you won't repent of it tomorrow? That's the precursor. Of course, God's mercy stands. But what if your hand doesn't come down? What if that moment, that, that blip in the screen where you had this tremendous hubris and pride to knowingly do something that you said, I know I shouldn't do this and I'm going to do it and I'm just going to look for forgiveness later. What if you can't repent later? What if you aren't soft later? What if your hand still remains lifted later? What if there is nothing for you later? What if God cut you off? Every sin is that important. God would not give us multiple options, intentional or unintentional. If it's intentional, take it seriously immediately, immediately. Because you are not promised tomorrow. Intentional sins and unintentional sins. There's a sin that remains, no sacrifice, no sacrifice for sin at all. Anytime we know that something is contrary to God, we have to confess it. God is not obligated to show us mercy. All of this message preps us to really love Jesus. I mean really love Jesus. Remember, we always presume, well, Jesus, the Gospels, it's always forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. The next sermon... When I come back, the prodigal son. That son comes to the father. The father lifts up his skirt and runs. He's that forgiving and gracious. But we must never, ever presume that that parable should just be taken lightly. Because the fundamental truth of this verse in Numbers 15 is God's mercy is not required. Because it is mercy. If he owed you mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. There's no point in which God has to say, well, now that you rebelled against me, you're opposed to me and my kingdom, you are an enemy behind the lines. You are in the nation of Israel and you're opposed to the whole system. Therefore, I must show you mercy more. No, God is allowed to cut out. God is allowed. We can never presume upon that mercy in any bit. How many of your Sins are intentional. Think through that. How many of your sins are intentional? 
And this is where the depths of our souls become complicated. Well, I kind of knew better, but I really wasn't in the right mind. And I was hungry that time, or I was tired that time. And we are complicated. We are complicated beings. And there are some points in the day where I would be in no way to entertain any sin or say anything contrary with my mind. But if earlier in that day I haven't had my mind fixed upon the Lord at all, I've been irritated at home, I've been pressed at work, later that night, do you, under, do you see how that works? Do you see how that works? How many of our sins are intentional? And then the more important question is how many of our sins are high-handed? High-handed. The phrase says explicitly, a high-handed sin is a sin that reviles the Lord and despises his word. That it's a sin in which is consciously opposed to God. To say, I know this is contrary to God and I am angry at God. I am resisting him knowingly. I am snubbing my thumb in his nose. I am trying to get at him. I am irritated with him and I am giving him this rebellion. In a deep, dark valley, people can go there. And that is a dangerous place to be. In closing, Rod, uh, Jay uh, Scar is a um, biblical scholar, actually, a covenant seminary, which is a seminary, actually, of uh, the church that we are, the PCA uh, denomination, the seminary there. He has broken down a few things, and this is the gospel. Let this hit you with all the force of the love of Christ, but understanding there is no presumption upon his mercy. He breaks down this and says that as he sees this, and he sees other instances of this in scripture, there are seven times in which the people commit this kind of sin. A very intentional, high-handed, rebellious sin. I'll list them and you can look them up later in your own convenience. But his perspective is this. There's Exodus 32 where of course they make the golden calf. And it's a high rebellious sin. Numbers 11. All they did was just keep complaining. But they were complaining to the point they said we want to go back to Egypt. And that is what Numbers 15 says reviling the Lord. I don't want to be a Christian right now. I don't want to follow the Lord right now. Numbers 14, they rebelled after the spies report, which as I mentioned, the spies say, you can take the land. They say, no, we're scared. We want to be comfortable in our own little Christian ghetto. We don't want to be out in the big world where there's giants making changes in the culture and having to argue with people about Christ. Let's just, let's just stay here in church. All right, well, that's high-handed rebellion because Jesus said, take the nations. You know, there are two options. Korah's rebellion follows in Numbers 16. The verse, chapter after this one. Then next one, number 17, there's another rebellion. Then numbers 21, there's another rebellion. All these are saying, I want to go back to Egypt. It's hard following Jesus. I don't want this. That's high-handed reviling the Lord. And then lastly, again, as they began with an idol worship in the golden calf, in Numbers 25, they, nothing has changed. They're still worshiping idols. In Numbers 25, the idolatry of Shittim. Look those up. Read them through. Put yourself in the story and consider a high hand before the Lord. Now, J. Scar has a pattern where he says all of these happen in such a way that there's this phrase, this image of a high-handed rebellion, spurning the Lord, rejecting the Lord, being stiff-necked to the Lord. 
What follows then always in this pattern of every incident I've mentioned to you is the rejection of the Lord and being his people. And then what return usually is God rejects his people and says, I don't want you anymore, be gone. And then what happens is usually a consequence in which it's just not as though the sin is just dealt with. But there's consequences of the sin in the real world they live in. Lots of people die. There's plagues. There's famines. There's venomous snakes. Bad things happen as a result of their sin. And what lastly will happen, the reason the scriptures continue, the reason crisis came, is because always God stops. And there's some unexpected, abnormal, bizarre mediation. What I mean by being abnormal, bizarre, is that it's not normal, right? So normally if you sin, you go offer a burnt offering and you offer a goat and it's dealt with. But see, these stories are pressing the boundaries of God's mercy. And there is no provision at that moment. There is no law prescribed. There is no sacrifice to be given. It's over. God cuts them out. But he never does. Every iteration of this high-handedness and rebellion pushes the goalpost down further just to say, what is it? What are the limits of his mercy? Always in these incidents, what happens is no particular sacrifice or, or pre, pre-planned uh, process for getting rid of this sin, but Moses falls on his face and just prays. Or Aaron goes out and does some particular sacrifice that God gives him to do just at that time, but it's not prescribed. It's always this abnormal, surprise mediation that wasn't part of the plan. But what it does is it demonstrates to another level the depths of God's mercy that he would be making up laws along the way just to keep you. All leading to the reason we are here today is that he would do something so marvelous So outside of the plan, so contrary to anything that would have been conceived, is that he himself would come. And that he himself would not just hear a prayer from Moses or Aaron, but that he would lay his own life down for every one of your high-handed rebellions, your deepest, darkest moments, the place where you are most backslidden, and there is no reason God should ever accept you. He did that for you. All leading to that moment. So that if you ever feel or fear, have I been high-handed to the Lord? Is there a place in Numbers 15 where I be cut off at this point? Where it's finally come to the end? Where I've sinned that sin the final time and I don't care anymore. I'm going to go into that sin. My parents raised me in the Lord to fear the Lord. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I want to do wrong. I want to do wrong. I keep doing wrong. I'm just going to go do wrong now. That is being cut off. That is God giving your mind, your soul over to the desires of which you constantly entertain. The beautiful gospel this morning is even though there's no law, no prescription, no recipe, no sacrifice that can be offered, he gave you his own son. He didn't offer an animal. He didn't let Moses pray. He came down And gave it all away. 
And right now is at the right hand of the Father, constantly interceding to make restitution for the saints. And then number six, Hebrews 10 warns, do not spurn the sacrifice of God. If we trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, what remains there for sin? If the blood and bulls of goats, it says in Hebrews 10, couldn't take away sin. And even then, there were certain sins and where there were no animals that could possibly be offered. Now today, if we take any high-handed sins, we are not eschewing some sacrificial system. We are trampling under our feet the blood of Jesus Christ. What then therefore could remain for our redemption if it is not now and it is not in Christ? Every sin is this serious. And therefore, we confess. Because if you can confess every one of your sins and anyone that comes to your mind that you hold back, be warned. Let that not be the high-handed sin that you will not give up. Let us pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you that we can confess our sins. We know that we confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If any of us sin, Lord, you promise that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we pray right now. This is not just a prayer to end the service. This is a prayer for you to change us. We are serious of this prayer. Father, we pray that you would have us grow in godliness. That you would have us confess all of our sins. And that we would be faithful and blessed because of your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. Have us grow. Have us win. Have us come over the sins that bother us, Lord. Let us be different than we were last week. In Jesus' name, amen.